Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. This morning, we're going to take you through the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Our guest, President Bob Kendricks of the Negro League Baseball Museum. So you can expect stories, you can expect a visual in your mind about the museum, and of course some information about the Negro League. So as we always suggest, you might want to take down some information you have, put this in your smartphone, you know, on that note page, what the website is and all that stuff, because we're talking Negro League Baseball right here on 98.7 ESPN, and we'll do that after this timeout. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Bob Kendrick was named president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in March 2011. His appointment marked a celebrated return to NLBM after a 13-month departure. He became the museum's first director of marketing in 1998 and was named vice president of marketing in 2009 before accepting the post as executive director of the National Sports Center for the Disabled Kansas City in 2010. But in his role at the NLBM, Kendrick is responsible for the museum's day-to-day operations and the development and implementation of strategies to advance the mission of the organization. He's been responsible for the creation of several signature museum educational programs and events, including the Hall of Game, which annually honors former Negro League baseball greats who played the game in the spirit and signature style of the Negro Leagues. Well, you've heard about him. Let's hear from him. Join me in welcoming Bob Kendrick of the Negro League Museum. Mr. Kendrick, thanks for joining us this morning. Man, it is my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Just for some of the younger members of my audience, give us a, a quick overview of what the Negro Leagues are and were. Well, the Negro Leagues were an organization that was born out of segregation. They couldn't play in the major leagues, so they created a league of their own established right here in Kansas City in 1920. As a matter of fact, a stone's throw from where the Negro League Baseball Museum currently operates, the Paseo YMCA is where Rube Foster and a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners met, and out of that meeting came the birth of the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league. Those Negro Leagues would then go on to operate for 40 years, from 1920 until 1960. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum was born in 1990, just, like I said, just literally in the same area that the Negro Leagues were formed with the mission of preserving, celebrating, and educating this wonderful piece of baseball and Americana that most of us really didn't know much about. And so it's our job to keep that history and the legacy of the Negro Leagues alive. Now, Bob, discuss with us some of the challenges, because for those of us who are familiar with the Negro Leagues or familiar with the history, sometimes the records weren't the best (laughs) being kept. So what's the challenge of preserving and correctly uh, chronicling the history of those who played in the Negro Leagues? And, And, you know, it's really interesting, Larry, because to be honest, we've never put a lot of emphasis on the records. Mm. It was the story. It was this powerful, compelling, inspirational story that had escaped the pages of American history books. And so really countless generations of us have gone through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. So the challenge was, how could we bring this story to life? And then we fill in the gaps. And we understand, as well as anyone, that baseball is this game 
of comparisons and statistics. And as you mentioned, with the Negro Leagues, it wasn't that the statistics weren't kept. It was just that they were lost over time. Because if they weren't playing in a town that didn't have black press, man, nobody paid them any attention. And that's a shame. You know, and so historians have done a tremendous job over the last two decades or so going back. And, you know, and I'm not going to say it was like finding a needle in a haystack, but it damn near was. <laughs> and they've done yeoman's duty going back and being able to unearth this information so that we can get a contextual look at quantifiable statistical data that helps put the Negro Leagues, like I said, in better context for those who need numbers. And our game is a game of numbers. But for us, it was always about the story. And this story is as inspirational as any you will ever encounter. Uh, There's no question about that. Bob, let's talk about the role of the black media and how they work really together with the Negro Mm -hmm. League and the players in the Negro Mm -hmm. League to get the information out and ultimately get Jackie Robinson to be with the the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, it's really interesting because it was at the urgency of the black press that a Negro Leagues were formed. Black folks have been playing baseball for quite some time, and but it never had the true organized structure that it really needed to be successful. And so the black press was pushing for this to be mirrored right after Major League Baseball and Rube Foster addressed that, pulled together the Negro National League in that meeting that took place here in 1920. Coincidentally, it was ultimately the black press that pushed for and fought to get integration in our game. They set up tryouts for ball players, uh, great writers, you know, the Wendell Smiths of the world and these guys. They were right there in the middle, Sam Lacey, right there in the middle of trying to get integration in our game. And sometimes I wonder, however, if they knew how detrimental losing the Negro Leagues were going to be from a business standpoint, from black economy, it was good for the soul of our country, and it moved us in ways socially and morally that we never ever dreamed possibly that we drop that we could ever dream that was possible. But man, some of the ramifications that occurred as a result of, as we look at what happened with black economy, it makes you wonder sometimes if they fully understood what this was about. But as I tell people all the time, there's always a cost for progress, always. And in this case, black businesses paid a dear cost for what was deemed progress. But the black press was so influential in both pushing for the formation and then ultimately pushing for for Major League Baseball to be integrated. You know, it's a fascinating discussion. My guest is Bob Kendrick. He's president of the Negro League Baseball Museum. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. It's so fascinating, Bob, because when we talk about the economic standpoint, and people may may heard what you just said and say, what what, what do you mean? Well, it was the African-American players, because they couldn't stay, because it was segregated, they couldn't stay in the in the white hotels. They went to the barbers in the community. They stayed with uh, African-American families. They ate at African-American restaurants. And so whenever these teams came into town, Bob, as you know, they, you know, went to these areas and that that's, you know, spurred and and increased the business and money in that area. So while you were while you were proving that you could be as good, if not better, in a lot of cases than your non-African-American counterparts on the field, it cost you off the field. 
Yeah, and you said it beautifully. I mean, you you framed it up in in exactly the context in which we try to help people understand here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Essentially, wherever you had successful black baseball, Larry, you had thriving black economies. Here in Kansas City, the Kansas the great Kansas City Monarchs played at well, it went through several different names, but at this time it was called Mulebox Stadium. And the stadium held about 17,000 people. Well, when the Monarchs played, it's 17,000 plus standing room only. And all those folks would come right back here to historic 18th and Vine, where the museum is located. And they were doing business with those segregated, mandated black-owned businesses. Because it didn't matter how much money Satchel Page made or Buck O'Neill made. They lived in the same neighborhood I lived in. And they ate in the same restaurants that I ate in because here in Kansas City, you could only operate. If you were black, you couldn't move outside of a 13-block radius. But as I tell people all the time, within those 13 blocks, man, you had everything you needed. And so the area was flourishing as a result of and so it's no different than when you build a stadium in an area and you see those areas start to grow because you have built-in clientele that then they spew out after they leave the ball game and support all those other businesses. It was the exact same thing with Negro Leagues baseball. When we return, we'll discuss how the Negro Leagues became the major leagues recently. Uh, you're confused, right? We'll explain that next on 98.7 ESPN. Thanks for stopping by New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. Let's continue my conversation with president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick. Before we get to the museum, Bob, I want to just switch, go back to one thing you mentioned. We were talking about keeping records. So let's talk about that and how that transcended now into Major League Baseball officially recognizing Negro League records. Yeah, no, it was a historic announcement that was made in December when Major League Baseball acknowledged and announced that it was recognizing the Negro Leagues for exactly what they were, a major league. And that level of, I think you could say, atonement, acknowledgement, and recognition for what the Negro Leagues meant both on and off the field was quite significant. Now, it doesn't happen in terms of the integration of stats if it was not for the work that historians and researchers have done pouring their hearts and soul into unearthing all of this information, as I mentioned, so that they could provide the substantive quantifiable data that was necessary. And so those records now will reflect from 1920 up until 1948. Now, honestly, I was hoping that they would move into the 1950s because you had a number of great Negro League stars still playing in the 1950s. And really, by 1948, you only have seven black players in the major leagues by that time. And so there were still a litany of great stars who were still playing in the 1950s. But again, I understand how difficult and challenging it is. And I'm still hopeful that at some point in time, we will expand to move into the 1950s and maybe Henry Aaron will pick up some more home runs, Mm. you know, as a result of. And Ernie Banks' numbers will transfer. But it does help guys like the late, great Monty Irvin, who was a superstar Mm. in the Negro Leagues, who hit 293 in his major league career, now, he doesn't get to the major leagues, though, until he's 30 years old. And he still is 293. But he will now be a lifetime 300 hitter if you take his numbers from the Negro Leagues. So, you know, there's some give and take 
in, in this whole equation. But, you know, by and large, man, we're super excited uh, of this recognition, and it was long overdue. Oh, there's no question about it. There's no question about it. And then you hopefully with that, you get to learn more about some of the players who played. I mean, you know, Josh Gibson was just an outstanding, Bob, I have to tell you, but Josh Gibson was just an outstanding <laughs> catcher who uh, I'm told hit the ball out of Yankee Stadium. I'm talking about like on the streets <laughs> of Yankee hit Stadium. Hit it completely out of <laughs> Yankee Stadium. For me, you know what was even more impressive for me? Mm. And the shot out of Yankee Stadium is obviously tremendous. But he hit he hit one in the upper deck, the right field upper deck at Yankee Stadium, one-handed. He was fooled on a changeup and reached out and hit it one-handed into the upper deck at Yankee Stadium. And, and you know, he was this kind of guy, Larry, that was so big and strong that he could poke you on your shoulder and it hurt, but he didn't realize he had hurt you. I don't know if he really understood how strong he was. And, and they say he hit it. And he's just, as he's circling the base, he's just giggling to himself because I think he even surprised himself with that shot. But, you know, the, the combination of power and average is unlike anything we've ever seen. My, my dear friend, the late great Buck O'Neill, would describe mm-hmm. him in this manner. He said that Josh had the eyes of Ted Williams and the power of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package. And I tell people, if you want to get an impression for his physique, how he looked physically, just think Bo Jackson as a catcher. Mm. That's Josh Gibson. I mean, it was ridiculous how big and strong this guy was at a time when nobody was lifting in weight, but big, powerful forearms, big, powerful thighs, but great eyes. Unlike most power hitters, he didn't strike out a lot. You know, he's going to put it in play, and he's putting it in play with a lot of power. As they used to say, Larry, his outs were loud outs. The third baseman and the shortstop were damn near in left field when Gibson came up to the plate because you're not creeping in on Josh because you get killed. (laughs) (laughs) It's what we call the shift now, Bob. (laughs) Yeah, we call it the shift now. They were doing that way back when, but it was – it was for self-preservation. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Kendrick's my guest. He's president of the Negro League Museum. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 987 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. And what he just gave you are some of the baseball stories, Negro League stories, that you hear when you visit the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Bob, let's, let's uh, talk about the museum and what some of the things people can expect when they come visit you. Yeah, it, it's special, man. It is special. We started this project, Larry, believe it or not, in a one-room office in 1990. And all it had was a conference room table and guys like the late, great John Buck O'Neill and other Negro Leaguers who were still with us at that time, sad to say all the players who once called Kansas City home have passed on now. And they literally took turns paying the monthly rent to keep the little office open. That's how we got started. And here we are now, that was 1990, here we are now in our 31st year of operations, recognized today as America's National Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, as deemed and designated so by the United States Congress in 2006. So it's been an amazing journey for a little museum that no one gave any chance of succeeding when we first started it. And we bring this incredible story to life. You know, the story is set on a timeline of American history. And so when you come here, you really are kind of introduced to an all-encompassing history lesson. 
you're able to not only witness the rise and subsequent fall of the Negro Leagues, but you're literally able to witness the social rise of America simultaneously. And, and believe it or not, and people are amazed, those stories are so intertwined. Yeah, this, this, this league, you know, we tell the story through a wonderful collection of photographs, artifacts, great scripted pieces, multimedia displays. We just installed a beautiful new permanent exhibit called Barrier Breakers, which mm. chronicles all the players who broke their respective major league teams' color barriers from Jackie Robinson in 1947 with Brooklyn through 12 years later when the Boston Red Sox become the last team to integrate in 1959 when they signed Elijah Pumpsey Green to complete the integration cycle. And as we so typically do in our society, we always celebrate the first. Mm. We rarely ever remember the second. Mm. And in the case of, of baseball, if you number 16, you can pretty much forget it. Nobody <laughs> remembers you. And so it was important for us to make sure that they weren't just footnotes in baseball and American history. As you well know, Larry Doby breaks the color barrier in the American League just a few weeks after Jackie, and he, for the better part, has been an afterthought. It has only been over the last decade or so that people have finally, long last, started to pay their proper respect to the pioneering spirit of Larry Doby. It's true. It's true. I had the pleasure of... Uh, of and, and and been blessed to have a chance to speak with Larry Doby on numerous occasions. Have a chance to be in, have interviewed Buck O'Neill, and Larry Doby, you know, is his humbleness was only yes. exceeded by his greatness. Right, he yes. he was just a humble yes. man. He always would refer to Jackie Robinson as Mister Robinson. He's a Mister Robinson did it first, and he went through that experience, Bob. Of you know, you put a hand out when he went to Cleveland. You put a hand out, some one person shook you. You put a hand out. No shake. Put your hand out. No shake. Put your hand out. No shake. Exactly. But you just continued exactly. to do that because that's what you had to do, Bob, to make sure that you were in, that you were accepted to play. You knew what you were getting into, but once again, as we mentioned earlier, that was the cost for you to show that you could play at the same level of your non-African American colleagues. And, and you know, it's really interesting, Larry, because having talked to so many of the Negro League players, they never believed that the players in the major leagues were better than them, but mm -hmm. everybody else did. Right. So now you want to prove to the world that you're as good as anyone. And, and so those players, particularly early on, you know, not only did you have to be talented, but you had to have the wherewithal to deal with all the social adversity that was going to confront you. It wasn't like, and you just described it, it wasn't like they were welcomed with open arms. <laughs> and on top of that, you had to be a model citizen. You know, so no one else was ever operating under the same set of circumstances as these players, both black and brown, who were now leaving the Negro Leagues to go play in the major leagues. You know, it's almost unfathomable to think about the level of pressure that was on them to succeed. And trust me, they felt the weight of their race on their shoulders mm -hmm. when they came up. You know, and, and it was just an you know, unbelievable amount of pressure on those players, and yet they found the ability to succeed and in a game that is tough enough to play under the best of circumstances. You know, Jackie Robinson was literally carrying 21 million black folks on his back yeah. when he walked across those lines to play with the Brooklyn Dodgers. So if he fails, an entire race of people fail. And if the first guy fails, 
there is no second guy. And and so that's what you were up against. And when, you know, having had an opportunity to talk to the late, great Henry Aaron and people like the late, great Frank Robinson, Mm -hmm. and you hear them, and they were highly competitive. You know, they had a brotherhood amongst themselves because they were all part of this fraternity of early black players to move in. But they were highly competitive because they knew that they had to to be better. And, And so we were sitting down and we're listening to Henry Aaron and Frank Frank Robinson in a conversation hosted by my good friend Dave Winfield, three mm. Hall of Famers. Yeah. Man, it was surreal. And, and Frank Robinson said, yeah, well, every time Henry hit a home run, I want to hit a home run. If Henry hit two home runs, I'm going to hit two home runs. If Henry hit three home runs, well, I hit two home runs. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, but it was that level of competitiveness, but there was still this camaraderie between them, which you could see at All-Star Games, how they would all congregate together, because it was just nice to finally see somebody. Yeah. You know, I hear stories <laughs> of Ernie Banks, who played here for the Monarchs. Ernie did not want to leave the Monarchs to go to Chicago. He didn't want to leave. They had to actually push him out. Ernie, you got to go. You got to go because Ernie was comfortable in this environment where he was around people who looked and acted just like he did. Mm-hmm. And so when the ball game was over here, they go to dinner. They went to the nightclubs. When he gets to Chicago, all of his teammates leave. And they go to wherever they were going. And Ernie and Gene Baker are relegated to the south side by themselves. So you can understand how challenging this was from a social standpoint. Definitely, definitely. Bob, you know, you said something to make you wonder. If Jackie Robinson fails in 47, do we see Henry Aaron, Willie Mays? Do we see, uh, you know, do do we see Derek Jeter? Do we see Aaron Judge? Do we see today's players? Do we see Dave Winfield? Do we even see these players? You know, that, you know, and that's the thing that you have to ask yourself, because if he fails, it could have been another 10, 15, 20 years or, or more for another black man to get the opportunity to play. And, and if it's 20 years later, you think about all the stars we would have missed, man. Yeah, yeah. We miss Henry Aaron. We miss Willie Mays, Ernie Banks, Roy Campanella, Bob Gibson, Roberto mm-hmm. Clemente. Can you imagine our sport without those great stars? And if you can, you can imagine what it was like before 1947. (laughs) They didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. And so this immense talent that had congregated in the Negro Leagues, not because they wanted to, but because they had to. And we're talking about both black and Hispanic talent that's playing in the Negro Leagues. You know, my dear friend, the great Minnie Minoso, I miss him dearly. Mm -hmm. You know, he's playing there for the New York Cuban. There were a litany of other Spanish-speaking athletes who called the Negro Leagues home. But I also remember hearing uh, Orlando Cepeda say his father wouldn't come here to play because he did not want to deal with the racism that was such so prevalent in this country. Now, he played with Negro Leaguers in in their native homeland and had, you know, great memories of so many Negroes. Orlando walked through this museum and he knew, you know, virtually every player, particularly as we talk about the 30s and 40s, he knew virtually everybody in there. So, yeah, no, he spent some time in my home and this kind of thing. It was amazing to witness 
you know, but his his father, the bull, you know, Orlando is the baby bull. And mm-hmm. his father, the bull, didn't want any part of this. Mm-hmm. You know, where other players like Manny Minoso saw this as that opportunity to to capture the American dream. And so he sacrificed, turned down more lucrative opportunities to play in the Negro Leagues in hopes that he could get to the major leagues. And it worked out. Yes, it did. <laughs> it really did. That's the voice <laughs> of Bob Kendricks. He is president of the Negro League Museum. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. I'm Larry Hardesty. When we return, we've been talking about all the men in the Negro Leagues. Well, there were some women who played and owned. We'll discuss that next on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. Let's conclude our chat with the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick. Bob, we've chatted a lot, and we've talked all about the guys in the Negro League Museum, but there's some ladies who had some very powerful roles in the Negro Leagues as well. Yeah, no doubt. It's one of those little-known but very profound aspects of the Negro Leagues as it relates to the role that women played in the Negro Leagues. Three pioneering women who competed with and against the men in the 1950s, Tony Stone, Mamie Peanut Johnson, and Connie Morgan. Tony Stone was the first female of professional baseball. And you have to remember that black women were excluded from the All-American Girls Professional League. And for those of us who remember the epic film A League of Their Own, you might remember the scene where the ball gets loose and the sister picks it up and she fires it back to Gina Davis. And everybody kind of looks astounded. I do think that that was a late great Penny Marshall's way of helping them know, letting people know that black women have been excluded. And so Mamie Johnson was the only one of the three women who played in the Negro Leagues that actually wanted to try out for the All-American Girls Professional League. And, of course, she was denied. But as fate would have it, a few weeks later, she gets a tryout with the Indianapolis Clowns. And so Tony, Mamie, and Connie all played with the Clowns. Tony Stone took the roster place of someone you probably heard his name mentioned a time or two the legendary Henry Aaron. Henry Aaron had signed with the Clowns in 1952 as an 18-year-old skinny, cross-handed hitting shortstop. (laughs) And and so for those in in your audience who may be hearing that term cross-handed for the first time, Henry Aaron, folks, was a right-hand hitter who was hitting with his left hand on top. That's (laughs) unorthodox. The fear is that you break your wrist hitting in that manner where Henry Aaron is knocking the cover off the baseball in a highly unorthodox fashion. By the end of the 52 season, the Boston Braves had signed him away. And so when he gets to the clouds, they put the right hand on top. And as I said, by the end of the 52 season, the rest is history. The Boston Braves had signed him away. They would become the Milwaukee Braves, who, of course, would become the Atlanta Braves. Henry Aaron will go down in this sport as one of his all-time greatest players. And again, Larry, in a game of numbers, no one's numbers are better than Henry Aaron. Mm-hmm. Well, Tony Stone takes his roster place. And so, yeah, was there a marketing slant to this? Of course it was. But it doesn't diminish the physical tools and the athletic ability that these women had. The Negro Leagues had started to lose its fan base to Major League Baseball. You know, as Jackie and subsequently other black players moved into the Major Leagues, well, that fan base that had been so loyal followed them to the major leagues because now you want to see how your great black stars are going to fare now that they finally have been given this opportunity. So the Indianapolis Clowns looking to tap into a new clientele hired Tony Stone. 
And, and Tony had already been kind of a, a journeyman, so to speak, in professional baseball. You know, played for the San Francisco Seals, the New Orleans Black Pelicans. And so she gets signed. Sid Pollock, Abe Saperstein bring her to the Indianapolis Clowns uh, where she stayed. And then subsequently they bring Mamie Johnson in, a five foot three inch pitcher with a strong right arm. And, and Connie Morgan, who was a tremendous athlete out of the Philadelphia area. But what really surprises people is that there were female leaders in the Negro Leagues, owners and executives, Olivia Taylor, Minnie Forbes, but most notably, Effa Manley, right there in you all's neck of the woods. She and her husband owned the Newark Eagles, right across the river, owned the Newark Eagles. Mrs. Manley ran the day-to-day operations of that baseball team, and Larry, she knew the business of baseball as well as any man. Had great talent play for her. My dear friend, the late, great Monty Irvin, Larry Doby. Leon Day, Willie Wells, all in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Don Newcomb should mm. be in the National yeah. Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah. All play for Effa Manley's Newark Eagles, man. She's the first woman to be nominated and inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It's amazing. And you're doing a special uh, on your Indie Museum and on the website this month, yes? Yes, yes, you can learn about these women and there you know there's always a selling angle tied to it. There's some great uh stuff books and bobbleheads and these things that have that highlight and bring about that spirit of the fact that women played a profound role in this league. You know, it strikes me guys that here's a league that was born out of segregation that becomes the driving force for social change in this country. A league that is born out of exclusion becomes one of this nation's most inclusive entities. They didn't care what color you were, and man, they didn't care what gender you were. Can you play, and do you have something to offer? And so, yes, you can. It's Women's History Month, and so we've got some great stuff online at nlbm.com that's a tribute to the role that women played in the Negro Leagues. So be sure to check it out and purchase some of that stuff, and it, it all comes back to support the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But it's also a wonderful opportunity to educate people mm-hmm. as well now bob i saw also on your website that you've got traveling exhibits tell me what that's about that looks fascinating yeah no we we had kind of committed ourselves years ago to build traveling exhibitions most museums are working with someone else to bring an exhibition in we did it the exact opposite we started building because number one there weren't a lot of negro leagues exhibits out there to bring in mm. and so but number two we didn't think anybody else could tell the story better than we could yeah. so we actually started building traveling exhibitions you know fellas as much as i would love for everybody to come to kansas city i know that's not possible but the story was too meaningful to leave isolated in kansas city so we started building traveling exhibitions currently we have six national traveling exhibitions. As a matter of fact, one of our exhibits has been on display for over a year at the Yogi Berra Museum in Montclair. Mm-hmm. And of course, the virus kind of hurt their ability to bring people in, but it was playing to rave reviews. And so we are actually in the process now of building number seven. And number seven will be a traveling version of the barrier breaker exhibit that we talked about earlier. And and so, yeah, these are all uniquely different. 
they look at the Negro Leagues through a different lens, and more importantly, they provide access to the story. Now, I certainly hope that I whet your appetite, that if your travels bring you to Kansas City, that you will want to come and experience the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. But we knew we couldn't leave this history isolated here. I don't think there was ever a time that people didn't want to know about the Negro Leagues. They just had no way to know about the Negro Leagues. And so these traveling exhibitions open up literally an opportunity for, the, for us to do that. And we, again, we go barnstorming all over the country, taking this history on the road. Bob, you have a Buck O'Neill Center at the Negro League Baseball Museum. I, I, I just can't, I, I can only imagine what you've got in that center where he was just so prominent and really such a great spokesman for the Negro Leagues up until he passed away. Yeah, no, he was amazing, and it's still in development, and it's being built in the same building that the Negro Leagues were formed in, the Purcell YMCA. Mm. So not only are we creating the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center, we're saving this historic landmark that is the place that the story that we're now charged with preserving all began. And so in essence, we're now going full circle. And so, but at the forefront of Buck's existence was education. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and this is with the understanding that Buck O'Neill was the grandson of enslaved people who was denied an opportunity to go to his native Sarasota High School when they were building this high school when he was a kid, who helped invoke change and then lived long enough to enjoy that change but never stop touting the value and the importance of education. So it's only fitting that this education and research center that we're building would bear his name. And, uh, you know, it's still hard to believe that this incredible human being has been gone now for almost 15 years. Yeah. Because I know, I'm not kidding. Everywhere I go, Somebody's got a Buck O'Neill story, and man, I never get tired of hearing them bring them on. You know, because it keeps him alive. It keeps mm-hmm. him alive in my mind and in my heart. He was my mentor. He was my friend. He was my confidant. Uh, Buck O'Neill had as much influence on me as anyone uh, outside my mother and father. And I tell people the smartest thing that I ever did was I kept my mouth closed and I listened. There was a lot of wisdom to be imparted. And now I get to share many of the stories that I heard from him firsthand. I get to share them today with people when they come to visit the museum, opportunities like you are presenting me with today to sit down and chat with you. And it it is special. I don't want people to ever forget Buck O'Neill, who I think, alongside the fact that he was one heck of a ball player, was one of the greatest human beings to ever walk the face of this earth. Mm. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. You know, we talked about, Bob, in the minutes we have left, we talked about earlier the amount of bobbleheads and different things you can get at the ML, at the NLBM.com gift shop. But the other thing you can do is you can just donate, right? You can just have donate to oh, help absolutely. the work that you guys are doing and helping build the Buck O'Neill Center and to continue to get, you know, the various events and, and the exhibits that can go around to spread the word about the Negro Leagues. It's so important. It is so important that we do everything we possibly can to make sure that the legacy of the Negro Leagues play on, that the life lessons that stem from this story of triumph over adversity, 
they are never lost to time. And, and so we do encourage people to make donations. We are a 501c3 not-for-profit organization. You can become a member of our museum. And let me tell you, there are members around the world. Many of them, Larry, will never step foot inside this museum, but they understand how important it is to make sure that we don't lose the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I tell people all the time, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum doesn't need to survive. It has to survive mm -hmm. so that we don't lose this precious piece of baseball and Americana so that our children have an opportunity to come to a place where they can learn something that none, none of us were ever privy to prior to the rise of this museum. But not only learn it for its tremendously rich educational value, but maybe even more so its inspirational value. Yeah, because I tell my guests all the time, man, if you walk away from this story with nothing other than this, what the Negro League teaches us is very simple. In this great country of ours, if you dare to dream and you believe in yourself, you can do and be anything you want to be. They dared to dream, as you know, of playing baseball. Larry, they had no idea they were making history. Mm -hmm. They didn't care about making history. They just wanted to play ball. But the pride, the passion, the perseverance, the determination, the courage that they demonstrated in the face of adversity. Our story is not about the adversity, but rather what they did to overcome the adversity. And that's the real story. Transcends race, transcends age, and it transcends gender. And that story has to play on. It definitely does. Bob, give us the information, uh, the website, when we come out to visit you at the Negro League Museum, where you are. Give us, uh, give us all that as we close today. Yeah, no, we're at Negro League Baseball Museum located at 1616 East 18th Street in the historic 18th and Vine Jazz District. You can find us on the World Wide Web at nlbm.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at NLB Museum KC. Uh, I'm at NLBM Prez, P-R-E-Z, for both Twitter and Instagram, and we're constantly updating and sharing information. It's the 101st anniversary, so we've got a lot of stuff going on in and around what we call Negro Leagues 101. So we're looking forward to uh, people joining us on what we anticipate being one heck of a ride this year in celebration of the 101st anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues. Bob, let me take this opportunity to thank you for what you are doing. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, Jackie Robinson, the pressure that he had and so on and so forth. Well, you know what? You've got some pressure on you too, my friend, and making sure that this continues to live and making sure that it's a, it's an organized way and, and giving out the information of teaching various generations who didn't know about the Negro League. So to you and your staff, continue the great work and thank you for giving us a couple of minutes this morning. Man, it is my absolute pleasure, and I thank you guys for the opportunity. Thank you so much. All right, Bob, take care. Bob, when I come out that way, I'm going to come see you and give you a call. You come see me, man. We go to the museum and eat some barbecue. Oh, no, oh, see, now you making me want to. You make me want to mess up my COVID and get on the plane now. <laughs> <laughs> you messing up, Bob. Uh, you you messing with me, Bob. <laughs> Bob, thanks for a couple of minutes, my friend. I know you're busy. And thank Joan, too, 
for her help in, in I will absolutely this. let her know. And no, no, we we always look forward to these opportunities, man. We need those voices out there, uh, and and so it, it's an amazing thing. So we always try to accommodate whenever we can. All right, sounds good. We'll do it again. Okay, looking forward to it. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. We thank you for listening as we do every Sunday. We'll join you this afternoon and during the week on ESPN New York tonight with Gordon Damer and right back here next Sunday morning on New York Sports and Beyond. For my incredibly talented producer, the all-world legendary Ray Santiago, and of course today, the coach, Anthony Pusick, on loan from the Michael K. Show. Don't tell him that we stole him. I'm Larry Hardesty. The conversation continues right now on 98.7 ESPN New York.